Welcome to Hunting Influence, a podcast by Influence Hunter. We share stories from those that have it and those that leverage it to help you develop what we believe could be the most important skill in business right now, influence. I'm your host, Aaron Kostinets. I am here today with entrepreneur Wiley Robinson. Wiley is the founder and CEO of Rumple, which makes high-performance blankets that use modern, technical materials commonly found in outdoor gear and activewear. Rumple's products blur the line between indoor comfort and outdoor performance, keeping you comfortable anywhere you go or when you don't go anywhere. In addition, Rumple is a certified Bennett Corporation. They offset their entire carbon footprint each year and donate 1% of all sales to environmental causes. Wiley, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I would love to start this out with kind of having you take me back uh, as to how you got started on your entrepreneurial journey. Before Rumple, was there anything that you ever did as a kid that was sort of entrepreneurial uh, that kind of showed you that that was what you wanted to do? You know, looking back, there were always little things I was doing, like, I, I mean, like lemonade stand level, um, nothing, nothing too serious where I actually registered a business or anything, but I was always kind of trying to, to have my own little side hustles, I guess, and, and sort of thinking of creative ways to make money here and there. And yeah, I, I had kind of just little, little gigs I did for myself, um, periodically and did quite a bit of freelance work as well before Rumble. So I, I was familiar with kind of eating what you kill, so to speak, and, and um, making all of my own money kind of on my own without the need for an employer paying me a wage. Talk to me about that. What were some of these freelance gigs that you used to do? Well, before Rumpel, I was a, I was a designer. So I did quite a bit of freelance design work. Let's see, I was a stagehand uh, at, a, at a venue in San Francisco, which was just kind of, you know, hourly work. I, when I was a really little kid, um, I used to go to New York in the summer and there was a, uh, it was called the death boat. This was a, like a ferry that people would get on in the morning on Monday um, and go back to work in the city. And I would, I would um, sell like coffee and bagels and stuff at, you know, five, six in the morning while people were getting on the ferry. Then at the same time, I would also meet those ferries at the end of the day and cart all the luggage to people's houses and things in a, in a wagon. So just like little side hustles like that. I mean, nothing too crazy. Um, but definitely like this is the first actual business that I've started that's been a proper, you know, registered corporation. Yeah, but it sounds like you were able to kind of get get some experience there, learn how to make your own money and not be reliant on other people. So so which of those do you think uh, was maybe the most impactful on you moving forward and, and made you know that this is, you know, entrepreneurship was for you? I mean, quite honestly, I didn't I don't think I really actually was aware of what I was doing <laughs> and how it and how it would relate to any sort of entrepreneurial ability later on. Um, I definitely think that I've learned majority of, of my entrepreneurial skill set through Rumble. And I, I think I've kind of just been learning on the fly <laughs> as I go. I mean, that's the that's the only real way to do it, right? Just get out there uh, and start something. Cool. Well, I, want, I want you to take take me back to your college uh, career. I, I saw that you were uh, an NCAA champion cycler. So talk to me a little bit about that and kind of how did that how did that affect the rest of your life, having that experience from a young age? Sure. So just just to be clear, um, I myself was not an individual NCAA champion. The team I was on, which is University of Colorado, we won a couple of national championships. So just want to <laughs> clarify that, that I wasn't like the gold <laughs> medalist of that. But the team that I was on, um, CU uh, Boulder, is, is a really strong cycling program. 
um, I raced on the mountain bike team. Um, I was doing downhill, and at the time it was mountain cross or dual slalom, which are kind of events that are more or less dead now. Um, but that, those are the disciplines I was in. And, uh, yeah, I raced for all four years. I was in college on the team, and um, we had a lot of success. We, we um, had either a, a first place or a second place every year I was on the team. That's crazy. How, how many teams exactly are there in the NCAA? Uh, how many cycling teams are there? There's a lot. I mean, there's really only, a, you know, probably a handful that are actually competitive and they're mostly in the West. Um, University of Vermont's pretty competitive. Uh, at the time when I was racing, Fort Lewis College in Colorado was really good. Um, School of Mines is really good. Boulder's really good. Let's see. Uh, Colorado State is really good. Um, Cal Berkeley has a good team. San Luis Obispo has a really good team. Yeah, there's probably, I don't know, 15, 20 schools that are actually competitive. But a lot of a lot of schools have programs. They're intramural programs. So they're funded intramural programs. Um, you know, considered considered Division One sports. But uh, it's not like you know football or basketball or soccer or anything where there's like real big budgets and big staff supporting the team. Um, it's definitely you know a lot of volunteer work. But the folks on the team definitely take it seriously. We took it seriously. We traveled around the western states and sunny east coast locations for our races, um, and it was just a lot of fun. It was like a great group of people. We had a ton of fun at the races, and we also took it really seriously athletically. Yeah, I mean, and also pretty crazy you guys were able to be that consistent that you were first or second throughout your entire duration at college. Was was that tough, kind of balancing being an athlete with all the work and everything else that goes along with being a college student? No, I mean, again, this, this isn't like, you know, mandatory everyday practices before a class or anything. All of the training, if, if you want to call it that, is us just riding. And we just rode a lot of bikes. Um, with, with folks that were on the team and a bunch that weren't also, that was just a big passion of mine. And one of the reasons why I, why I wanted to go to school in Colorado was just because of a really good biking scene. Um, in addition to a good design program there, but that was a huge, huge part of my life at that time. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't hard to balance. It was just what I was doing. Um, and, and for the most part, school always came before biking, you know, that was the priority. So got it. Big, big hobby of yours anyway, something you would have been doing and instead you were just doing it with fellow like-minded people and competing. Cool. So after college, what was the next step for you? I saw that you you spent some time in the working world before eventually uh, starting Rumpel. So so what what happened to you straight out of college? Sure. So my degree from college is environmental design, which is like a pre-professional degree for architecture. Generally, the, the path after an environmental design degree goes to, you know, an MArch at a master's program where you get a master's of architecture and then license to become an architect. I did an internship my senior year of college with a big a big architecture firm and very quickly realized that this is a, a very highly technical profession. You know, academic architecture is like really conceptual, almost more like art. And um, when I got some exposure to the real working world of architecture, I realized that it was it was very it's a really serious occupation. And it should be because you're responsible for buildings, you know, not collapsing and endangering people. So Right away, I realized that, that this might not be um, the perfect path for me. So I, I decided to get it. I applied for a job and was, was given a job at um, an agency called Communication Arts in Boulder. And that really stayed sort of conceptual. We, we were responsible for some construction documentation. But generally speaking, we were, we were doing what we would call placemaking, where we would illustrate, you know, uh, mature projects um, before they had been built. So if you ever see a big construction project and, you know, on the chain link fence, there's like a rendering of what the project will look like. And it's like this colorful picture with mature trees and shoppers bustling around and things like that. 
we were creating those assets and those assets were being used to sell the project to potential anchor tenants before the property had been completed. So if it was, if it was a mall or a lifestyle center or something like that, the developers could take our assets, our renderings and show them to a really strong anchor tenant, like, you know, gap or North face or REI or something like that, that would come in and help fuel the project and, and get the occupancy off the ground. So that was my first job out of college really as an illustrator, as, as like a digital illustrator. And from there, I actually got laid off in 2018, like a lot of people, or excuse me, 2008, um, like a lot of people, and um, did kind of a number of odd jobs here and there. This is where I kind of started picking up a lot of freelance work wherever I could. That lasted me probably seven or eight months, um, and I was just kind of trying to scrap around and figure out ways to make money, um, all sorts of random jobs. And um, I elected to move to San Francisco, which is originally where I'm from, because I thought there was a lot more opportunity there, a lot more you know, good design avenues that I could pursue. Um, from there, I did a bunch of freelance work at various agencies, um, MKTG, IDEO, uh, a couple of others. That's where I was the stagehand at the music venue. Uh, but I eventually landed a job at an agency called Landor. Um, and Landor is widely credited with like inventing branding. Um, Walter Landor was sort of one of the first people that published any, um, you know, documentation of like, a brand is more than your logo. A brand is every touch point that a consumer interfaces with. And it's really just like this holistic approach to branding. So I got this amazing education in, in branding from one of the best agencies out there. Um, Landor's, you know, got 25 offices all over the world and they do everything from strategy to naming to environment, signage, all that. So I, I even though I was working in the environment group with my architecture background, um, designing fixtures and retail spaces and things like that, I had a lot of exposure to all the other teams that were under that roof. So that, that's really where I picked up kind of my love for branding and storytelling. And that's, that's where I went straight to Rumble. Um, that's, I, I brought a lot of those skills and a lot of those learnings into Rumble and created, um, through that experience, you know, I think a, a pretty dynamic brand that has a cool story to it. And that's really what drives the business is the storytelling. Um, the products, you know, themselves are, are, great, but they're not something that somebody couldn't just copy. Um, there's a lot of copycat products out there. And I think the thing that Rumble does better than anyone is actually tells an interesting story about our products. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's really nothing more important than branding. Obviously you have got to have a great product, but so many people do. And after that, it's just about the story that you tell the consumer. So I, I, I didn't actually realize that Lander created branding. I'd love to hear more about some specific lessons that you took from them uh, and applied that to your brand when you actually launched it. Sure. So yeah, I mean, Landor is, is one of the largest branding agencies in the world. Um, it's owned by WPP you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in annual billing, um, global. Uh, most of the clients are huge. You know, I was working on Chevron and Taco Bell and uh, Miller Coors and BP Gas. Like, these are big, big contracts um, for brand overhauls and advertising campaigns and things like that. So I think the, the biggest lesson that I probably learned while I was there was just to focus on the consumer. And it sounds, it sounds really obvious, of course, but every project we worked on always started with kind of like identifying who we were trying to talk to. Um, whether it was a group of consumers or an individual. Usually with these larger companies, it was groups, but the work is still the same where you kind of go in and understand who it is you're trying to talk to, what really motivates them, what's going to connect with them, and that's what you try to carry through in all of your design work. And was there any specific tricks that you found to make that easier and really help actually understand the consumer besides you know the obvious ones that you'd think of? Yeah, like to some extent, you know, we would go through these really robust research 
studies where, I mean, like, for instance, I, I worked on a Taco Bell repackaging project where we were tasked with pre- presenting a number of uh, new packaging solutions to Taco Bell. And for several weeks before even starting design work, we went to Dallas and shadowed, um, you know, like heavy Taco Bell users, people that are eating Taco Bell five, six, seven times a week and understood what motivated them to go back to Taco Bell, like what they really loved about it. And some of the, some of the things that we learned were genuinely unique. Like we, we really identified, you know, some key reasons why people keep going back to Taco Bell. But when we actually got to designing, there were some ideas we had that were just good ideas. Um, so we, we elected to bring some of those forward into the actual presentation we later presented to them. So I guess this long answer, but what I would say is um, tips and tricks, I guess, like there's, there's a lot you can learn from the customer. And a lot of times you have to go with your instinct as the designer and present what you think is a good solution. Um, hopefully that aligns with the consumer and you know, you can, you can do your best to try to design exactly for that customer, but sometimes they don't necessarily know what they want. And so you have to kind of lead them to that solution. No, that's a good answer. And I think that's really cool that you guys would, would actually just follow around the biggest Taco Bell consumers and really, you know, not just give them a questionnaire, but really learn from their lifestyle. I think that's super interesting that people can take from that and apply it to their own business. Uh, cool. Well, I, I'd love to, to get into Rumpel now. So uh, I'd love to hear, you know, why you actually decided to start a, a blanket brand and what that looked like when, when you first started creating it. Yeah. So I started the company with a really good friend of mine. Um, he's my co-founder in the business. He and I were on a ski trip in 2012 down by Mammoth. Um, we were staying in Bishop, California, and we were kind of up a dirt road by this hot spring we were staying at. And we were sleeping in the car. And that night, uh, it was like the coldest night on record in Bishop. And the car completely froze over. We woke up the next morning. There was you know, a foot of new snow on the ground. Uh, car wouldn't start, completely dead. And we found ourselves in this situation that was kind of sketchy. I mean, we, we had no cell service. We couldn't walk into town. And we pretty much had to just wait there until somebody showed up. And what we decided to do, because it was so cold, is climb into our sleeping bags and you know hang out there for several hours waiting for somebody to arrive. And in that time, we got to talking about how we really weren't that uncomfortable because we were in these sleeping bags. You know, despite being in this like pretty precarious situation, we actually weren't tripping about it too hard because of the protection our sleeping bags gave us. So we, we both said, you know, I, I like our sleeping, my sleeping bag way more than my blanket back home. And we decided to make a sleeping bag blanket. And that's kind of what it was called. And that was sort of the end of it. We eventually got out of there, obviously. And, and back up to San Francisco, where we were living at the time. And we went to a local fabric store and picked up some, some uh, insulation, some generic insulation and a ripstop shell and sewed up what were the first rumples. And we were using the products for a few months and a number of our friends said, hey, this is a really cool idea. You know, I'd like something like this. And we still weren't totally sure if this was a good idea or if, if others outside of our friend group might be interested. So we decided, let's do a Kickstarter. Um, and at the time, Kickstarters were fairly novel. And, um, and so we thought this is a cool opportunity to try this out. Obviously, now Kickstarters, you know, are much more professional. Real businesses are doing Kickstarters with significant budgets to actually produce the videos and all that. But in 2000, this is kind of 2013 at this point, 2013, it was still fairly novel and new. So we probably pulled together the Kickstarter for, I don't know, two or 3000 bucks total, you know, paid some friends to do the video, got a working prototype of, of our product, launched the campaign. And within 12 hours, we had, we had generated about $25,000. And that campaign eventually 
went on to generate, I think, $220,000 in, in 30 days. So that really told us that this is a viable idea that people might like. Um, and that's really what launched the business. What was your goal at the time? When you, so you got 220000 which is obviously a great Kickstarter, even, even today. Uh, what was your goal at the time? What did, what did you think it would take to be successful? We wanted to raise 20000 So uh, we did way, way more than that. And that allowed us to you know, quit our jobs and really kind of hone in on what we created here and, and decide to make it a business and not just kind of a single one-and-done product. So were you still at Lender when you did this Kickstarter? I had actually left before. I had been there about four and a half years, and I was ready for something new. I really wanted to sink my teeth into designing this product and working on it. My partner was still at his job. He, he quit a few months later, but I, I had already left at that time. And do you think you would have been, uh, or your partner would have been able to quit, and you would have been able to fully commit had you done, say, $10,000 on the Kickstarter? Or was this kind of yeah. make it make it or break it? However well this does, yeah. we go along with it. No, we would have definitely packed it in had we not gotten the campaign funded. Frankly, if we hadn't done more than you know forty or fifty thousand, I think we probably would have packed it in. I've definitely met with a number of people that have done Kickstarter campaigns that kind of just crossed over their their funding threshold. You know, they raised twenty five thousand dollars on a twenty thousand goal or something like that. And as tough as this advice is to give, I generally tell them like, you know, you really need to ask yourself if this is actually a good idea or if you kind of squeaked by here with your network and people that you can help add to the campaign because you can generate a good amount of sales through your network if you really promote the campaign. We probably generated, I don't know, five ten thousand dollars $10,000 of sales through our networks, um, friends and family telling about what we were doing. I mean, that's, that's equivalent to, you know, about 100 units sold. Um, and between two people, you can you can probably get that done if you if you hit the pavement. But if you if you do a campaign that isn't wildly successful, it's probably going to be a struggle to get this idea to really get realized and uh, build some traction. Yeah, that that makes sense. And a lot of people also give pretty low goals just so it looks good. You know, if you have a ten thousand goal but you get a hundred thousand, it looks a lot better than if you had an eighty thousand goal got a hundred thousand. Cool. So, so what then after the Kickstarter, when, when you guys realized that you had something here, cause you just raised 220,000, what were the next steps that you took and what was kind of the, the, the next year of Rumple? What did that look like? I mean, there was a lot, but I would say high level the next year looked like just kind of getting the, getting the wheels on, um, incorporating the business, finding out, you know, figuring out a, a fulfillment solution, setting up all of our back end, you know, our, our website and trying as best we could to build sort of a roadmap for what the company would look like, a product roadmap, a brand roadmap, look at what our you know first couple of hires might look like, who we wanted to be as a company, just kind of setting the foundation that we could build on after that. And, and what were you guys doing at first to get customers beyond the ones that you had originally gotten from Kickstarter? So it was, I mean, largely social media. You know, we, we uh, definitely turned to Facebook and Instagram right away, um, built a little following there. You know, it probably wasn't until a year in when we had amassed, I don't know, 10,000 followers. So it took a long time to get even to that. One of the, one of the first things we did hire, uh, in addition to our 3PL, our warehouse, was we hired a PR agency fairly early. Um, and at the time, I think we were paying, you know, $3,000 a month, something like that, two or $3,000 a month. But if you get one or two press hits a month in reputable media sources, that can pay for itself pretty quickly. 
So that was a good move for us. That really got the word out there and helped us quite a bit in the beginning. And our agency at the time did, did a great work. Um, they got us in, you know, Outside Magazine and Gear Junkie and Backpacker and Rock and Ice and Climbing Magazine, all the kind of like hit list of outdoor magazines um, and media sources we were, we were showcased in. So that was really helpful. And yeah, then, then really trying to figure out our sourcing and supply chain. We switched supply chains two or three times in that first uh, two years, um, just trying to find good partners, the right pricing, the right quality, all of that stuff. There's just a lot of busy work, clerical work. You got to get done in that first year or two. Um, and it's super hard to do. There's a lot of dead ends, a lot of, you know, just sort of unfruitful work that you end up doing. Um, I think if I were to start a business now, I could probably get all that stuff set up much, much quicker. But we were learning at the time. Neither of us had started a company before, and we were just getting advice wherever we could from friends that had done it or just seeing what other people were doing out there and, and uh, just hustling as hard as we could. Well, that's what you got to do. And it sounds like so these magazine hits were huge for you when you were first starting out. Was there was there one in particular that made you go, OK, like now we've made it big. Like this is what we've always wanted. I mean, we never said now we've made it big, but I, I think that one hit that was really impactful for us, which was actually completely organic. This, this was not through our PR agency. Is during our Kickstarter campaign, Business Insider did a piece on us. And it was actually kind of a long form piece. It wasn't just you know, here's a cool product, here's where you buy it, boom. It was like, you know, multi-paragraph written piece about what Rumble was doing and about kind of the unique story. These outdoor guys are designing blankets, what's going on here. Um, and they've done really successful on Kickstarter. So it, that was really, really helpful for us. And that opened up the aperture for our audience well beyond outdoor enthusiasts. You know, I would say Business Insider is sort of like a general public news source, media source. So that was really good for us. And that definitely helped propel the campaign much further beyond where it was at the time. Yeah, that's a huge, huge get. Do you have any idea how they found you? You know, I don't. I, I want to say that it probably was... At the time, I was sending a ton of cold outreaches to friends and LinkedIn connections and things like that, just seeing if anybody would cover the, I was sort of doing the, the work of the PR agency at that time mm -hmm. before we had one, um, just seeing if anybody would cover us. I probably sent several hundred cold outreach emails. Um, and, you know, we probably got 10 or so press hits during that time. It was probably a friend of mine that had a connection to a writer or some staff person at Business Insider if I'm forgetting who that was, I apologize if they listen to this. But yeah, I mean, I was just like pulling on any connection I had to get the word out about what we were doing. That's awesome. And you didn't have to, you don't have to pay for Business Insider, do you? No, no. I mean, we didn't pay for anything during our campaign. We literally did zero advertising. We paid zero dollars in marketing. We only paid a couple of thousand dollars for a friend to make a video. We hired a friend. We also, you know, we had to pay a little bit of money to... Uh, get the actual prototypes made for the campaign. But yeah, I think the whole thing was launched for like under five grand. That's awesome. So you guys didn't raise money beforehand. You guys were bootstrapped, kind of learn as you go. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. And there's definitely, I mean, some people view crowdfunding as circumnavigating bootstrapping, but I disagree with that completely. I think crowdfunding is just pre-selling product. Um, so that's organic sales. You know, you just do it in a way where you don't have to kick the production off before you actually have products in hand, which is really smart. So yeah, I, Rumble was completely bootstrapped for the first two years. And then we did do a small seed round. Um, and that really allowed us to hire some people and kind of get ahead of our, of our cash turn. Cause we had, we had to keep reinvesting money back into more production of the blankets once the, once the business kind of took off. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I always always like bootstrap companies because you really can't cut corners at the beginning. You gotta gotta find what works for you, uh, and you can't just guess and, and spend money until you figure it out. So I always yeah. appre- appreciate bootstrap companies. So let's talk about growth. How did you get to where you are today, and, and what what worked for you long term, and, and and where are you guys at now? I mean, it's been it's been slow and steady. You know, like Rumpel has grown each year, but it's definitely been a grind. And we've definitely, um, you know, we've made a lot of mistakes along the way. We've had some luck happen along the way. But right now, we're a little over twenty employees, and we're you know sold in big national retailers: REI, Nordstrom. Shields, Zappos, Moose Jaw, Backcountry. We also have a pretty robust direct business. Our product line has grown pretty considerably. And yeah, just chipping away at it. I mean, we we haven't accelerated growth as much as some companies you hear about these days with you know massive VC funding. We did raise a, a, an A round in 2018 with some VC coming in, but it wasn't a humongous round or anything. And we've just been trying to build the business profitably, You know, making sure that we actually have a margin structure that allows to, to fuel our own growth, but injecting some some investment capital for you know testing and, and expansion into new channels and things like that. But it's been relatively organic and slow and steady and just a lot of grind and working on it. Yeah, that's respectable. I think there's often a lot of temptations to try and grow really fast, but you can make a lot of mistakes and, and end up ruining what you've built when you do that. Um, So I want to get to talking a little bit about some of the commitments that you've made. So your website states that whenever possible, we use post-consumer recycled materials in our products. Through that effort, we will have upcycled millions of discarded plastic bottles. Um, So before making this uh, commitment, what kind of investigations did you go into uh, the feasibility of using such materials? Yeah, for the first four years or so of Rumpel, we were using virgin materials. And that was because we had been shown when you source fabric, you generally are given a big swatch book of viable options um, if you work with a sourcing partner. And they go out and find, you know, 10 or 20 different swatches of materials you could use on your product. And when we looked at post-consumer recycled uh, materials at that time in the beginning, we just didn't, we just didn't think any were, were as good as the virgin materials we had felt. So we elected to prioritize hand feel and performance with some of those virgin materials for the first few years. But really, the post-consumer supply chain just caught up. Um, and now, when you when you compare a post-consumer cycle polyester to like a virgin nylon, it's very very difficult to tell the difference. And so, you know, in two thousand, I guess it's two thousand seventeen or so, two thousand eighteen maybe, we started exploring post-consumer cycle content a little more. We said that we we didn't want to change our cost structure uh, to the best of our ability, so we wanted to keep our margins the same, but show us materials that are in the same price range as what we're currently working with that are post-consumer recycled. And to our surprise, the swatch book that got sent to us was beautiful. There were lots of viable options there. Uh, and I think that as demand for post-consumer recycled has gone up, so to have the technologies for creating great materials out of that raw content. And so we found a really great post-consumer recycled polyester. We found a really great post-consumer recycled insulation. And we now make our products out of those materials instead of the virgin materials. So were you guys super early to this? Because I feel like it's more of a trend now, but I feel like you you, you kind of got started earlier here. Is that correct? Has that helped you being a first uh, I wouldn't say we're super early. I would say we weren't late. 
you know, by the time we had, we really, we really switched everything over in full in 2019. So only about two years ago. Okay. But yeah, like it obviously takes a number of months to develop those products. So we were really working on it back in 2018, but there was a lot of companies already doing it. Um, and I think that a lot of the companies that were doing it well before us, they really pushed the supply chains to be able and the mills to be able to create these materials so that they were of, of a higher caliber um, than they had been when we explored it, you know, six, seven years ago. Makes sense. They kind of paved the way for you. What kind of obstacles did you run into when setting up this process? Honestly, very few. I mean, I, like, I, like I sort of explained, we, we told our, our um, trading partner that handles all of our sourcing, we said, hey, you know, we'd like to see what's out there that's post-consumer recycled. Please send us some swatches. They sent us the swatch book and it was like, wow, these are really good. These, these cost the same? Okay, awesome. <laughs> Let's just switch. Let's get a prototype made. We had a prototype made and all of us were just like, this is as good or better than what we currently offer. Let's make this change effective immediately. The real error and the real challenge that we experienced when we did do this was not actually in the sourcing um, or the costing or anything like that. It was actually in the marketplace clearance. So we had a bunch of you know what we would call 1.0 products out in the market. This is virgin material product. And when we switched over to post-consumer recycled, we had to basically clean the marketplace of this 1.0 product. So we had to do a ton of discount activity. This was both through our website and also our retail partners. And that was really tough to get through because, you know, to a, to a new consumer that's coming and wants to buy a relevant product, they're going to go on there and they're going to see one thing that's half off and another thing that's full price. And maybe they don't notice or they just don't care if it's post-consumer recycled versus virgin, but they're going to go for that 50% off one every time. So that was really tough for us in 2019. We just had a tremendous amount of clearance activity and that really um, was a big growth inhibitor for us in that year. But now all the marketplace is cleaned out and, and we're selling just post-consumer recycled at full margin. And uh, overall, it was a good decision for the brand to make. But definitely the, the challenge was in rolling that out. How long did that transition take? I would say a full season. I mean, in, in, the, fall in the fall winter season of 2019, we were dealing with an abundance of off-price products for the entire season. So, you know, five, six months. Um, we had a really challenging holiday season in 2019. Because of that, you know, some of our key retail partners were kind of flat year over year because of the discount activity they had to do. It was a tough hole to dig out of, actually. So, yeah, it was it was definitely significant, but I feel like there's almost no clearance activity happening with Rebel right now. So we're, we're we've swept all that out. Awesome. So it was worth it in the end, but I, yeah, I can see that it would be a super tough transition. Um, so other than using post-consumer upcycled materials, uh, is there anything else specifically that you'd say you've done to make your brand stand out and be different? Yeah, there, there's quite a bit. I mean, on the, on the sustainability and for good components, uh, we're actually going to be rolling this out in a couple of weeks here, but Rumble recently became B Corp certified. So that means we meet the highest standards for environmental, social, transparency, accountability. Uh, that was a big effort to go through to get the, the business certified as a benefit corporation. Additionally, we're 1% for the planet members. So we donate 1% of all of our sales every year to environmental causes. And then finally, we're climate neutral certified as well. So we offset 100% of our carbon footprint every year. That scopes one, two, and three. And we try to be as low impact as possible as a business. That's one thing we do to connect with consumers. That's something that matters to our consumers. And then additionally, there's a lot we do just in terms of like community engagement, artists representation, 
like I mentioned sort of at the beginning of this, the products themselves aren't super difficult to create. Lots mm-hmm. of other businesses could create these products, but where I think Rumpel does a great job is building our brand, connecting with our consumers in a variety of ways, be it sustainability messaging or art or community engagement. That's kind of how we, I think, beat our competitors is by actually connecting with our customers the best. Yeah, it makes sense. And I'm sure it's also helpful not just to separate yourself and, and build a brand that people want to buy, but even uh, for you to get motivated each day and go to work. And also for, for the members of your team, it must be super nice to, to have a mission like that and be trying to make a difference in the world, I would imagine. Yeah, it, it's definitely a big deal for, for internal morale, retention, recruiting, for sure. We've got a number of roles that we're recruiting for right now. And across the board, people we bring in for interviews what drew them to the job was Rumpel's mission and Rumpel's for good causes, give back causes. Like they feel good about working for a company like Rumpel. So it's been a transformative thing for the business to do is to actually prioritize the stuff and invest in it. Yeah, I can see that. Um, so I want to get to your experience on Shark Tank that you had uh, a little while ago. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about what that was like and, and did it positively impact your business in a big way? Yeah, it was, it was a really, I mean, just for me personally, it was a really cool experience to have a totally unique experience in my entrepreneurial journey, I guess. And so no regrets there at all. The impact to the business has been strong, definitely positive. You know, I've talked to a couple of other folks that have been on Shark Tank and they had probably bigger pops in their, in their business and their revenues after the airing. Um, I think that also could be because Rumpel was, Rumpel has been maybe at a little bit larger scale than some of these other businesses um, before they were on the show. You know, they're going from like near obscurity to being seen by 5 million people and their website goes through the roof and everything. We were kind of already doing pretty good sales on our website on a daily basis. And then the episode aired and we probably had a day that was, you know, 3x, 4x what we normally do. So still really strong, but it wasn't like a 20x jump um, like some companies see. But it was a cool experience. I had to, you know, obviously do it with COVID and everything. So we had to quarantine in the hotel before taping. The show itself is real. I mean, there was no breaks, no stops, no redos of anything. So you go in there, you pitch, and you you duke it out with the sharks. And it was it was intense for sure. <laughs> it's as intense in person as it looks on the show. So you when the show airs, it's like ten minutes per episode. I would imagine that you you're there for longer than ten minutes. Is it just ten minutes, or how, how long does that interview actually take? Yeah, I was in there for about an hour and a half. Wow! Um, and so you're in there having a really intense conversation for an hour and a half and then they edited it down to 10 minutes i would say generally speaking what aired on our episode was pretty much what happened there were a couple parts that i didn't think were as accurate as, as i remember them but overall what you saw on the on the episode is pretty much what happened is there anything different that people who have never been on shark tank but watch it wouldn't think would go down or is it just exactly as you would imagine i think that one thing I wasn't totally prepared for is the speed that the conversation would go at. I don't know if, if the sharks are incentivized by like the amount of airtime they get or something, but they are all just talking at once. And I, it, it immediately was clear to me when I was on there that my job was to kind of like manage the conversation and, and delegate who kind of had the mic. Um, Cause they're all talking at once and it's just going fast. It's intense. And that, immediately became clear to me like the second I finished my my little intro pitch. <laughs> I would imagine it's because they, they're all kind of ego people and they all want to have their their voice heard that they just all kind of talk over each other. But 
Yeah, I can. That could be. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a reasonable hypothesis. <laughs> cool. Well, I, I was impressed at your ability to, to not take some of those offers there because you had a, a bunch of interested sharks and, and most people who do that kind of compromise and, and take deals that maybe don't make the most sense for them. But I thought it took some serious willpower to just say no to everyone. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, cool. Well, I, I thought uh, really interesting watching watching that episode. So I want to get back to Rumple. So with everything that uh, you've kind of uh, learned uh, over the your years running the business, uh, if you were to do it over again uh, with a limited budget, what marketing channel would you start with, and where would you focus your efforts if if you uh, had to start this all over again now? Honestly, I would, I would probably do what we did, which was kind of go heavy right away into Facebook and Instagram. The reason why is when you have limited money, it's really important that all of your dollars are trackable and returning positively. There, there's not a lot of place in an early stage business for like brand marketing, as, mm-hmm. as weird as that sounds. Um, but showing up and being present at an event or giving out free stuff or whatever. I mean, those are all activities you can do and they're fairly low cost, but I think it's really important for all of your dollars to be trackable early on. So I would I would go with digital platforms where you can follow that dollar and see what it's returning. Direct response channels that makes sense. I think you know, especially when you you're young and you need sales immediately, it's important. Uh, have you guys ever utilized influencers in the past? We have a little bit, but not like a really serious program with with payments. That's really only started recently for us. You know, that's another one that is is very difficult to track. Um, unless you give the influencer a specific URL or a specific code or something like that, that's really tough to track where you just have somebody sort of posting about your product. So we, we haven't done a lot of that historically, but we've started to do a little bit more of it. We're doing some tests now and seeing some some initial results that are promising. Yeah, even even when you do give the discount code and, and UTM links, it definitely uh, can be hard to really see all the impact that it's done. It's definitely more of a, of a brand overall brand builder than necessarily a direct response channel like a, a Facebook ad. So what are some, you said you made a ton of mistakes uh, throughout your experience here. What are some of those mistakes that you've made throughout the process? And is there anything that you would do differently or were those important for you uh, to kind of learn and grow from? They were all really important to learning and grow from. I mean, the things that I view as mistakes they actually aren't necessarily mistakes. They're just, we might've done a lot of work for something that didn't actually pan out or come to fruition. So it's, you know, I could, I could say that it's wasted time, but you know, you learn a lot in doing that. So like what I would do as a mistake is, is for a while there, we weren't totally set on just doing blankets. We thought about doing other types of products and um, we spent a lot of time talking about other products and, and, you know, hiring contractors to potentially design some things for us. Um, and just thinking about what the business might look like if it was expanded beyond blankets. And that was important for us to learn what we should be focusing on and, and develop our focus. Um, but it was a mistake in the sense that it delayed the expansion of the blanket category for us. So mistakes, sure, but also really important learning experiences for us. So nothing major. So everything there uh, you would do over again because you felt like it was necessary for your growth, but nothing that you did where you, you're like, oh my God, I wasted so much money and so, or so much time. I wish I could have this over, do this over. Oh no, there's, there's definitely, I mean, okay, I'll try to think of one. Uh, let's see, in 2018, uh, we got word that there was this uh, Guinness Book of World Records attempt for the largest ever blanket fort. And we were like, oh, this is perfect. We should sponsor this. 
you know, we got to talking to the event organizers and it was like $40,000 or something to sponsor it. You know, we had had a really good year that year. Um, and we were like, let's do it. This sounds really cool. You know, we'll be in the Guinness Book of World Records. I mean, we didn't get nearly that type of route. I mean, we probably got, <laughs> I don't know if we got any additional exposure for sponsoring that event, honestly. So that was just a huge money hole right there. That was a big mistake. I've made a ton of mistakes in hiring. I've, I've hired people that are sort of the wrong fits for what we need. I haven't done a great job clarifying what we need or writing good job descriptions or creating um, the right KPIs for employees. I mean, there's tons of mistakes there, but all of it's learning. And so, I mean, some of them for sure, like you, you, you learn very little, I guess, but I'm probably not going to sponsor a blanket order <laughs> Guinness Book of World Record attempt again. So, you know, I definitely don't want to view anything as like a complete net negative experience. Yeah. Uh, well, I appreciate your honesty uh, going into some details there. And, and I can see how you would fall into that trap because that sounds super cool to me to be able to market that and to get exposure from being on the Guinness World Records. I mean, that sounds pretty interesting, but obviously it didn't work out too well at this yeah, time. Yeah, sounded perfect, but it didn't do much for us, that's for sure. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't heard that answer yet. Cool. Well, obviously, this has been a really tough going on about a year now with COVID and everything. So uh, I'd love to hear what kind of impact that has had on your business and how you guys were able to adjust uh, to this new lifestyle. So there's obviously been challenges with how we work now and, and all of that. But generally speaking, the COVID environment and the general consumer mindset has actually been pretty favorable for Rumpel. The, the categories we have heard about and everybody's heard about doing well, of course, are outdoor recreation, which is something we, we do. That's our bread and butter for sure. Um, comfort is a big deal now. You know, any apparel company that's got kind of like a loungewear or a comfort component to their line, those aspects of their business are doing well. And then additionally, just like home improvement, making your home a little bit nicer. And for us, that means outdoor living, patio, backyard type stuff. Um, that's, that's something we can definitely speak to as well. So you guys were kind of well set up for, for what was about to come, even though, even though you didn't, didn't necessarily see it coming. Yeah. The brand was well positioned for what, uh, what happened during COVID. Cool. And going off on that, and this is my final question pertaining to, to Rumpel exactly, but where do you envision Rumpel going uh, one, uh, five, and, and 10 years from now exactly? So we're, we are focused on the blanket category, um, and we see enough growth room in blankets um, to keep us very busy for the next five years. Um, most of our work so far has been in kind of this like outdoor recreation space, but we're gradually kind of migrating closer to the home. We've done a big push lately to show customers that our products work really well kind of on your patio or your backyard or, you know, adjacent to your home. Um, and we've got some products that we're rolling out pretty soon here that are true indoor products. Um, and kind of the final, the final frontier for us, the end point, I guess, would be on bed. So developing products that actually live on that bed. And, and once we've, we've completed that rollout, um, we will have an answer for our customers, whether they are on the top of a mountain or at home in bed. Um, and we want to be able to provide that full suite of solutions for blankets. Yeah, I love that. Um, do you have any plans of ever being acquired or is this something you want to own completely forever? I think there's definitely an opportunity for Rumpel to experience more growth with the right acquisition partner. You know, this, as I mentioned in the beginning, like this is the first real business I've started I have no delusions that the road ahead will continue to be challenging and, and they may very well likely kind of outpace my learning agility as the CEO of the business. So I would, I would more than welcome um, when we get to the point where 
uh, it's it's a little too big for me to handle to bring in a more experienced management team and really take the business to the next level. Yeah, any any dream uh, acquisition partner for you, if you could just name one? I mean, it's mobile kind of bends categories a little bit. Like, you know, are we are we outdoor? Are we home goods? Um, so I think it, it would depend on what the acquirer saw in the business and where they wanted to take it. If it was like a VF corporation, for instance, and they were more focused on outdoor, the product roadmap might look a lot different than what I just articulated on bed. Um, but I think that there's probably, you know, some other partners that, that might be able to um, see the value in sort of that full suite, you know, in bedroom all the way to, to the campsite type assortment. So I, I can't really name a, a perfect partner right now. I think it would just be somebody that was aligned with the mission and the the category we're trying to create sort of top to bottom and didn't want to just carve out one little aspect of what we're trying to do as a brand. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. Cool. Well, appreciate you being honest about kind of where, where you see that going in the future. Uh, I'd love to get to what we call the quick fire round. So I'm going to ask you some questions and I'd love to hear your answers ideally in 30 seconds or less, but definitely in uh, a minute or less. And they're, most of them aren't necessarily related to Rumpel. So do you have any morning rituals that you do to kickstart your day? Every morning I get my son out of bed and I make him breakfast and make myself coffee. It's pretty much 100% every day. <laughs> what time do you do that at? <laughs> he really, he calls the shots there, but it's between, I'd say on the early end, 6 and on the later end, 7.30. Got it. And is there anyone whose content you listen to, watch, uh, or read the most currently? I mean, this has nothing to do with Rumble at all, but my favorite podcast for sure is uh, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. I love that show. I've listened to every episode. I just think it's so funny. It's a nice little escape for me when I'm on a drive or something. Nice. And do you have a favorite book of all time? Yeah, definitely. As it relates to business, um, the one I always recommend is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben, ben Horowitz. And that's just a good, I mean, he, he went through some major struggles. It makes any challenges that I've gone through completely pale in comparison. Yeah, I love that book too. What is your favorite purchase you've made uh, of $100 or less? Uh, I, have a really, I have a really awesome pair of slippers that I'm wearing right now. I think they were about 80 bucks. Wait, um, well, I don't even know what the brand is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, think, I, honestly, I honestly think I, I, think I got them at REI. Um, here, I can look, I can look up. Pull them off my foot right now. <laughs> well, they're called glare-ups. They're like these really cool, minimal slippers. They're super cozy. I'm wearing them right now. Let me ch- I'll have to check them out. Um, where is your favorite place you've ever been to? North Island of New Zealand. What city exactly? We started at the top and drove all the way down. Um, and I mean, honestly, the, the, whole, the whole country is amazing, or at least the North Island, which is where we were. Um, but Auckland was where we kind of landed and picked up a camper van and spent about three weeks just cruising around. Um, I really liked the town Raglan. Got to do some surfing there. That was great. And just kind of good vibes in that town. Yeah, beautiful place. I can see that's kind of on brand with uh, you and your company. Uh, so what is your favorite brand that isn't Rumble? You know, there's some brands that I really like because of what they do as a brand. Um, one of my favorites is Peak Design. I view Peak as like, kind of appear to rumble in the sense that we got started around the same time, both through Kickstarter, both in San Francisco. And so I really like them just like how they've approached building their business. It's amazing. 
Um, and then I like other brands, you know, for their products or their, their message. Um, as I mentioned, I'm a, I'm a big mountain biker, so I definitely follow a lot of mountain bike brands. Um, you know, Yeti cycles is a really good one. Super tried and true, super core still. They built a great business. They have great products. They sponsor good riders. Yeah. So I would say my answer is sort of dependent on which lens I'm looking at it through. That makes sense. And, and my last question for you here is what advice would you give to someone looking to build their own influence? So that can be in the business or influencer world. I mean, the advice I'm probably going to give is like so generic, but um, just be authentic. I mean, I think that it's so easy for people to see through see through somebody that's faking it. Um, and so, you know, don't try to be an authority on something you know nothing about really focus on the things you know something about. And yeah, I think that I think that true influence is sort of organic. You can't really buy influence or you can't um, manufacture influence, in my opinion. I think that you need to, to do it from an organic place and you need to uh, be authentic to actually have true influence over things. That's a good answer. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me, Wiley. Uh, and I think a lot of people can learn from your story uh, and everything that you've done. And I look forward to uh, following the next chapter with you and your company. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Hunting Influence. To find out more about Influence Hunter and how we source micro and nano influencers to exponentially grow the reach of your brand, visit InfluenceHunter.com. And then make sure to search for Hunting Influence in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Influence Hunter, thanks for listening.